The views expressed in our episodes are ours alone and do not represent any other organizations. Our episodes discuss internet crimes against children and cases that involve the exploitation of children and may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Yeah, we don't want to do anything to scare your children. That's the last thing we want to do. We don't want to scare anybody. Well, hey, Tony. Hey, Brandon. How are you? Welcome. Catfish Cops, episode two. Two. Can you believe we're already in this? I can believe it. I absolutely can believe it. Um, I think we've gotten a lot of positive feedback from uh, our first episode and just sort of our pre-launch as we get ready for this. Uh, By the time people are listening to this episode, obviously we'll have episode one will have come out. Yes. Uh, But based on uh, some things we're seeing through online platforms it's looking pretty promising yeah so we uh we really are thankful for all of the positive feedback yeah and we want to talk about um the fact that we didn't just start this podcast out of the blue we also didn't start this just to um try and put our names out there because honestly who cares who we are right uh, but we're hoping that maybe we can open some eyes to the fact that this stuff exists. You know, I'm still always amazed that when we talk to people, I find that it like people don't believe this is happening as much as it is. Yeah. A very sheltered, um, very sheltered one dimensional thought process that, Oh, we know that bad things happen. We know bad things exist. Yeah. Sort of in a bubble. Like I equate it to my mom. My mom sort of lives in a bubble, you know, like very safe, very normal, Which you know. is which is perfectly, yeah. I mean, it's a coping mechanism, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so if you don't believe something <laughs> happens as frequently as it does, then you might worry that, or or then if you are made aware of it or you believe it does happen now as much as it does, then it's like, oh, you're always suspicious. So why, I guess, what's the question? Why do we want to open up eyes to this? Well, I mean, it's a, it's a topic of, I think, really utmost importance. Um, I think it bears mentioning that um, as we kind of progress through our podcast, we're, we often tend to default to humor um, as a bit of a coping mechanism for our own sanity uh, because of the things that we are exposed to and uh, the things that we see. So we tend to, you know, sometimes look at the lighter side of things. Yeah, we definitely are aware. Uh, so we don't want to diminish someone's abuse no um, a survivor's abuse we certainly don't want to make light of of something that happened to someone um so please if you're a survivor of of any kind of abuse but if you're listening to this don't take anything we say as making light of of these circumstances right we actually in in those circumstances where we do have cases with live victims we are the biggest advocates on the planet for them. Yep. And so uh, we will uh, put some notes or some resources in the show notes uh, for anybody who um, feels like that may be warranted. We would encourage you to go there on the website and, uh, or on the show notes on the podcast. But you've uh, been doing this for a long time. I've been doing it for about five years, 13 years for me. So 
like, yeah, in order to remain sanity, uh, sane, w- which I guess, you know, I, I kind of thought just now, maybe our friends would say we're not. <laughs> so, but to Perhaps. keep our sanity, to keep, that's the one question that I think I get asked the most is how do you do, deal with these cases? How do you do this? Yeah. How can you deal with these cases? Because remember, we're not just dealing with doing undercover, you know, cases that deal with the solicitation of children. We're also dealing with child sexual abuse material day in and day out. Yeah. And the cases that revolve around that. Um, So we're talking to people who have a sexual interest in children. Yep. And so when people ask us, I mean, how do you answer when someone says, how do you deal with these cases all the time? I mean, certainly it's not a, it's not always easy. It's to me, it's the end game. It's the ability for me to process what it is we have to see and be exposed to, um, to take that from inception to conclusion. And by conclusion, I mean a, a successful prosecution where that offender is locked away for some hopefully extended period of time where they have Andrew. no access yeah. to a real kid um, or to material that facilitates that thought process that they have. And so for me, I focus more on the end game than I do on the what gets us to the end game. Yeah. So the so someone just said this this week, like, what do you, when it's a case involving a real victim, like ultimately there, our focus is not on, you know, seeing someone put in jail. That that's never our focus as detectives. Our focus is on the victim being rehabilitated to wellness and that the truth comes out. That's ultimately what we're after in all of our cases is just the truth coming out. Right. Um, So we don't, you know, I think the difficulty is that, that in dealing with this, people think, oh my gosh, you must just, you must just be so sad. And I mean, look, when we're focused, when we're dealing with the material, yeah, we're, it's tough. Yeah. Right. It can be, yeah. It can absolutely uh, be life altering. Yeah. But if we don't find the humor and stuff, if we don't like, believe me, before we started talking today, we were probably making jokes about each other more than anyone would believe. Yes, that happens. That happens a lot. <laughs> so, yeah, that's all to say that uh, we don't want to diminish anyone's um, experiences. Not but at all. We do want to bring light to these cases. We want to um, kind of tell you how people do stuff that may um, put your kids at risk. We want to bring awareness. I think that's the, yeah. the word I'm looking for. Uh, and then we're also going to talk about some of the funnier or lighthearted things that went on during the cases. So yeah, the things that kept us sane. Some of the things I think also um, bear some explanation is the actual cases themselves and the fact that we are going to uh, assign, I guess, uh, or use yes. a, a pseudonym for the offenders that we're going to talk about. Um, and there's a multitude of reasons for that. Mainly One, to protect case integrity. Right. And just to make sure that we're not bringing more shame on someone that's already been through right. the justice system. Right. Obviously, there could be some circumstances where we may be able to uh, be a little more forthcoming with information if 
if the planets aligned and someone was willing to uh, be subject to that. Uh, but it's something we're going to explore down the road. But for the time being, out of just an abundance of caution, we're going to give a pseudonym to each of our offenders. And while we may talk in general terms, I think it's a, f- a fair assessment to let the listeners know that uh, the cases we're talking to you about are absolutely real cases. Yeah, we're not making up stuff. Yeah, this, none of it's made up. They're, I know that there's a whole uh, fact check sort of mindset in today's environment uh, that we all live in and are navigating through. And um, I can assure you that um, nothing we are discussing is made up. We have too many people around us that would call us out if we did it. So. <laughs> yeah. yeah, absolutely. So yeah, we're going to talk about, we want you to learn something too. Uh, we want to give the tips, you know, when we, when we teach to parents and organizations that are asking questions about, you okay over there? Yeah, I'm okay. I'm good. So when they're asking questions about like, how do we protect our kids? We give tips and things that tips and tricks that we come up with or that we believe help. Um, so we're not, uh, we're not going to like tell you something we wouldn't tell a parent or we wouldn't tell a family member um, yeah. in how to protect kids. So we're going to point coming out up. things. We're coming up. I think that's on our schedule here in the next, uh, maybe the next episode or two where we're going to have a, a pretty good, hopefully constructive conversation with listeners to let them know a lot of these things, how to do and what not to do. And yeah, how to make our lives easier, how to make me not lose hair. It's all about working smarter, not harder. Absolutely. So we're going to talk today about a case of child sexual abuse material yeah. um, related topic. So we're going to call it CSAM. Um, and I think if you listen to episode one, we talk about why we didn't, we don't call it the term that's been around for years, child pornography. Mm-hmm. So if you hear us say CSAM, that's what we're talking about is child sexual abuse material. Those images and videos of kids um, involved in sexual activity or, or what would be traditionally known as child pornography. Right. Um, so go ahead and tell us, uh, and remember this is a pseudonym. So we are talking about who today, today we're going to talk about David Heath, um, a 57-year-old male, and the case stems from, uh, it, it's very interesting. It takes, it goes back as far as about 2010 for me um, when it first kicked off, and it kind of came in as a reactive case, meaning someone made a police report and said, hey, this is what happened. And, and what initiated that was a janitor at a local church um, had gone out to take out the trash as the end of the day, uh, just dumping the last trash can, does so in a dumpster outside of the church and looks down and sees a computer bag. And in the computer bag, he, obviously it kind of stands out because it was just set up into the at the base of the dumpster and wasn't like just tossed in, you know, absentmindedly. And so it took he took note of it, and he was an elderly guy, pulls it out, and inside of the bag is a laptop, um, a couple of external hard drives and some uh, paper with color pictures on them. So like, this was inside the dumpster, not inside outside dumpster. of the dumpster. No. But it wasn't just tossed in. Like it was set down in there. Like maybe somebody planned on coming back to retrieve it. And so obviously this was a concern and the, the janitor thought, well, you know, maybe we can get this returned, uh, you know, to the rightful owner or whatnot. So he actually took it home because it was the end of the day. He 
talk to his son, who's a, a little younger and wiser with uh, technology. The son uh, determined that the laptop was locked with a passcode. And so he told him, he's like, hey, we're not going to be able to figure out who owns this or get it back to him. So you should take it back to the church the next day. And so that's what this guy did. He turned it back to the church and he gave it to one of the leaders of the church. He said, hey, this was in the dumpster, but apparently it's got a passcode or something. And I don't know if we'll be able to figure out who who would own, you know, who owned it. And so the the leader of the church, he said, well, you know, heck, we have a guy that's in our congregation who's a police officer. We'll just ask him what we need to do. And so that's what they did. They, at the end of the service, they uh, talked to the officer. The officer's like, ah, it was probably stolen in a burglary. You know, somebody's car was burglarized. Somebody's home was burglarized. I'll take it. I'll give it to one of our property guys or a burglary guy, and we'll we'll see if we can get it back to the rightful owner. And so that's what happened. He took possession of that. And um, fast forward to Monday. This all obviously happened over the weekend. It was found on a Saturday, turned back over on a Sunday, brought to the station on a Monday. And so it was given to a property detective or someone who handles those types of offenses and said, hey, this was probably stolen somewhere. Maybe we can figure out who the owner is and get it back to him. And so the detective turns on the the laptop and it's still password protected. <laughs> it hadn't miraculously come off or anything like that. So that was a bust. And um, at that point, he took one of the external drives, plugs it into the network. Uh-oh. And yeah, that um, one that will sometimes trigger some IT people's eyeballs to bug out of their head. Um, it's not a very good practice. And maybe you could tell them and briefly. why is that? <laughs> yeah. Well. So, so for <laughs> listeners, why is it not a good idea to take some USB or hard drive, which are fairly common and just people have them for stuff. Why would it be not a good idea to find that on the street and then just plug it in? Well, there's a number of reasons for that. Um, One, we live in a uh, technology-based environment 24-7 nowadays, and there's a lot of um, scams, phishing scams, the pH phishing, um, where identity theft is a, you know, billion dollar industry and sometimes there is some malicious software malicious virus or a trojan or some other sort of so they could get your banking information could get rights to get onto your computer could get rights to log on and turn on your webcam and you wouldn't even know identity theft identity theft among other things in this case why was it a bad idea for the detective to plug it into the network and uh, just look at it that way. Well, as soon as it was plugged in, the external hard drive, um, and it populated on his screen, there were thousands and thousands of images and videos depicting children, child sex abuse material. Uh, So he's now panicked, probably. Very panicked. Uh, The oh crap moment hits the eyes bug out of the head as you reach quickly to withdraw that uh that usb cable from the drive and your computer but what do we know about computers when you plug in a usb or a drive like that what is it does it leave a footprint 
It does. It absolutely will leave a footprint. And it so transfers information, right? It does. It it gives some sort of information between the USB and the computer to show that it's been there. So maybe for our listeners' sake, why don't we want them plugging or why would we suggest they don't find a USB and just plug it in and see what's on it? Because if it has CSAM on it, what are we going to find when we look at it? Right. And and ultimately that would give us the ability through legal process and whatnot to then pour through that machine to, for the purpose only of excluding that person right. from that particular set of circumstances. So yeah, protect yourself. If you find something, um, and granted, you know what? Obviously we can't just say you should just turn in everything that's found. Um, right. So maybe you look at it, but if you look at something and it does have something like this on it, CSAM, what should they do, Tony? Um, if they have looked at something, obviously they need to contact the police yeah. right away. You need to call the police. The don't one th- throw it back in the garbage yeah, can, please. Yeah, yeah, please don't do that. We certainly don't want, um, especially a child uh, who may just be dumpster diving to find something. Uh, they they all know nowadays how to manipulate data and, and use technology, and we, that's the last thing we want to do. So I would definitely say call the police. Be very detailed about what you did. You can even explain to them that I didn't know what it was. I connected it to my laptop, and I saw this, and I immediately pulled it out, and I called 911. How often does that happen? Because I can say I, I remember a case six months ago with that Yeah, where they plugged in something that they found, and it was like, oh, no, yeah, it's got these – pictures of kids naked on it and all right and they panicked and they turned it over to the police right away um but we did have to like show that they weren't the ones that put it on there and things like that right obviously it raises questions about uh, you know when someone calls to report that this is what's happened number one i mean some assumptions we make is that the bad guys probably aren't diming themselves out hopefully hopefully. or or no hopefully they do Uh, criminals aren't caught because they're the smartest That's always, true. but that is true. Right. We do. So, yeah. So what happened uh, in this case, it wasn't a citizen that plugged it in and found that it was, yeah, it was, it was the police officer. It was the police. And so that has to be documented obviously. And, um, secondarily they have to run some scans on the computer to make sure that nothing infected the computer and thus infected the network as right. the network speaks to everybody. So it, it does create some some problems. So we're going to do it in a safer way, right? We are. What did you do? I uh, used what's called a write blocker, and I connected the device with a write blocker, which prevents any commands from being written, and it's just a safeguard. Um, I will say that the, the protocol that I followed in 2010 is different than the protocol I would follow now because... Number one, I was not trained to do computer forensics in 2010. I knew the, I knew basics. I knew things of that nature. I was only working um, cell phone forensics at the time. Um, but my initial belief was, is there anything available? Because I knew what the process was going to be. I'm going to have to submit this stuff for a full forensic exam. And the backlog of that to get back is going to be significant. Yeah, because the lab is going to take some time to do it. Yeah, it could, it could be one month to six months. Right. And so what I opted to do was document what I did, photograph what I did, um, go through a write blocker to prevent anything 
from happening and to see if there was any data that I could recover that's not child sex abuse material that would lead me to identify who might have done this. Yes. So the child sex abuse material isn't, you know, that's the illegal component, but now you've got the difficult job of finding out who who is it? Right. Whose is it? And so that's what unfolded from there. I was able to uh, parse through, you know, some personal documents. I came up with a name. I came up with some, you know, personal non-sex abuse material photographs of people. Um, now, when we talk about CSAM, we're not talking about like, oh, this this is pictures of, you know, because I get, I get asked this sometimes by even by other officers, like, this isn't like, oh, you know, is this a teenager or not a teenager? You knew when you looked at this. Right. This is child sexual abuse material. Yeah, absolutely. The question I get a lot is, so I can't take a picture of my kid in the bathtub who's playing with his boat and doing these things or, you know, innocent family type photos. And so I could, I could tell you uh, 1000% that this was child sexual abuse material. The graphic visual depictions of children being sexually molested. Evil. It's evil, evil evil stuff. It's horrible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Terrible, terrible. And so some of the non-CSAM material, I was able to um, navigate through, find some clues as to where this may have originated. Um, And eventually I ended up finding a photograph of a motorcycle with a license plate. And just, you know, luck has it. I run the tag and it comes back to a residence that's less than a thousand yards from the original church where this was dropped. And so that in itself, um, while no solid proof that it's that person. Um, it is a clue and something that we follow up on. And so, um, what I began to do at that point was some just old school surveillance sitting up on a, on a house. Um, that's not always the easiest thing to do. Um, maybe it was slightly easier back then. I could tell you from nowadays standard much harder. So, we often get other detectives who are like, Oh, I want to do some of that stuff. And it sounds really cool. And if you watched TV, maybe it would be cool if we could do what they do on TV Yeah, where you just sit for, you know, five minutes and then see all of the stuff. Right. Yeah. Solve a crime in 10 minutes. The non cool part of surveillance is how long it takes. It's terrible. It's hours. I had uh, two straight days and, hit donuts. I had nothing, no movement, no coming and going. I mean, I was, I, I thought I was just looking at an empty house for a while. Uh, but then day three surfaced and that's when I got uh, positive confirmation that the subject that I had identified in the non sex abuse material, the photographs I had recovered with some motorcycles was actually at the house. And so I got a positive, um, identification through photographs and seeing the actual person uh, during my third day of surveillance. And so um, as that surveillance continued, it, and again, while it's no indicator that he's the guy that did this, it's just he's on the device and has the information uh, associated with this illegal, you know, this illegal material. And so what changed the dynamic of this case was that I saw a young woman and a child, um, come out of the home. And so 
as soon as I saw that, I, I think as a listener, you need to understand that that is a total game changer for us because um, what's paramount for us in these investigations is that someone does not have access to a real kid. And so I don't know who the child is, uh, the woman is, it could have been a, you know, this is an elderly guy, could have been a, you know, his own daughter and his grandchild. Um, so a lot goes into, a lot does go into like making the decisions of how long do we wait? How long right. do we watch? You know, how long do we dig into something before we have to then make contact? Right. Because, yeah. you know, there, there may be times when a bad guy does have access to a kid but they're not around that kid at any point by themselves or, or something right. like that. And that may change it, right? Yeah. That may change yeah, how we absolutely. approach it. It's, it um, so what in this case made you say, we have to go now? Um, as I saw the interaction between this subject and um, the adult female, who was an adult, but much younger than this gentleman, at the time. Um, and when I saw them interact, like uh, she left with the child and he kissed her goodbye. And then I thought, well, that's not his daughter. That's that changes things. Well, so a kiss on the cheek. Then. Yeah. Right. Gotcha. And so at that point, I don't know if it's a girlfriend, if it's, I don't know what it is, but I know that I can't allow, allow me to not do anything about it. And so that starts a whole chain of events with things um, and where I get some assistance from other coworkers to help with specific things. And, and in the end um, legal process to authorize us to execute a search warrant at that residence. What does legal process mean? That means that we applied to a court um, with probable cause that an offense has been committed and that we would like to go to a certain specific location. And this is why we are tied. We have this affirmative link to this specific location or this specific person. So you didn't do on like a TV move and just, you know, kick a door in and, and say <laughs> like, we're after this and hope for the best. No, no, no I'm, I am not about uh, doing that. I enjoy the freedoms that I have and I would like to continue to have those freedoms. And we believe in their, the freedom of people to be free of unreasonable searches and seizures Absolutely. Right? as addressed in the fourth amendment. Absolutely. So the fourth amendment says we have to do what? We have to have enough probable cause to justify what we're requesting to do. To whom do we take that? We take that to the judge. We take it to a judge who then uh, reviews our affidavit, who reviews our request. And uh, depending on the circumstances, and if they feel that the probable cause is there, they authorize that that legal process. And it's very, it's very detailed as to why we're asking for it. Yep. And then what we're asking for. So in this case, what were you asking to go in and search or seize? So this was a search warrant only, meaning that I wanted only to go to the residence um, to one, identify all occupants. And number two, I wanted to seize anything capable of storing digital media, anything. And so that really encompasses a lot of things, camera cards, micro SD cards, you know, something that's the size or smaller than a postage stamp, you know? And so, um, obviously computers and laptops and storage devices and anything like that. So let's say you go in and there is a hard, or I'm sorry, a computer, like a desktop computer. Yep. 
and you start searching that, can you see whether those hard drives that the police detective plugged in were plugged into these computers? Uh, while at the time of this particular case in 2010, we did not do an on-site preview like we do now. In current situations, yes, we could. We so could determine that. We can see that a hard drive you know, that we have in our possession may yep. or may not have been plugged into a computer there at the scene, right? Correct. Okay. Yep. And so in this particular instance, um, it turns dark because I'm sitting on a surveillance to make sure that this uh, young lady and child did not return to the home. The warrant is authorized. And so it's uh, just hits the hour of darkness and we execute the warrant. Um, we knock at the door. I hear Mr. Heath. Just a minute. Yeah. Now, wait, I want to go back. Why you said now we do on-site previews. Yeah. What does that mean? Um, essentially now we request through the judge, um, for the ability for us to use specific tools, forensic tools in order to look at devices that we deem or potentially deem as potential evidence. And so, yeah, technology from 2010 Mm -hmm. to 2020 has light years jumped ahead right oh yeah it's i mean when did the first smartphone came out in 2006 ish right or or thereabouts Thereabouts. you know so like technology's really come forward just leaps and bounds and so we can do today what we couldn't do then but why why not do on-site previews then um again i just at that particular time i hadn't um been trained to do that obviously we can't just go willy-nilly and hope for the best we what now, we, so on-site preview doesn't mean you just click and open folders and look. Correct. Okay. So correct. why why don't we want that happening? Um, well, number one, it's it's going to be a great defense yeah. <laughs> for them. It wasn't me. It was that guy. That guy sat down on my computer and did this. And so we want to follow protocol. We want to follow guidelines and standards um, that that allow us to do what we're doing using tools we're allowed to use. It's not just a free search uh, for us to do that. Now the defense of you showed up already having brought some CSAM and like put it onto the computer has been thrown out before, right? It's, it has. it's been given before. Yeah. But you didn't bring anything to put on a computer. Obviously we did not even, even bring the original evidence that we had originally been given. So the reason we follow these guidelines and protocols are so that, we don't even have to make an argument for why we didn't do that because right. we can show that we we followed very strict yep. procedures. Absolutely. And that way that can't even be thought of. Yep. Right. Absolutely. Gotcha. And so uh, when we execute this warrant, um, you know, we just simply knock at the door. We announce it's the police and we have a search warrant and he came to the door. Obviously, I had been sitting there watching the house, so I knew that the woman and child were not home. Um, but I didn't know if anybody else lived in the residence and, um, lo and behold, he was alone inside the house. It was a two story place. And he came to the door. He was very cordial, very, um, welcoming. It, it kind of threw me a little bit. I'll be honest with you. Like, uh, so we interview, right? We interview on a search warrant. We interview pretty much everyone that's in a house. Yep. Um, not because we think everyone's done it, but we have to gather information. That's the purpose of us being there. And what do we run into a lot? 
Tony, with with yeah. particularly someone who knows that they've been doing the bad stuff that we're probably there for. It's usually not a very welcoming. Um, it's not very welcoming. I'll just leave it at that. We've seen the spectrum, right? Of yeah. of like we've seen the person who tells us to get bent and we're yeah. done. Yeah, we've seen the person who is like suspicious of us, but mm-hmm. is but is kind and talkative. Right. Where would you put Mr. Heath in this? I would put him at the far extreme of overly nice, um, very cooperative. Does that make your spider senses go off? It did. Can it, I say it, spider senses? Like we have, yeah. I think detectives have like this. The sense. hair in the back of your neck stands That's what up. we always say, the hair on yeah. the back of your neck. So yeah. like we have this instinct maybe or yeah. – this perception that something like, and you know, obviously when you do it enough and you talk to people enough, you start to sort of feel out how people tell things that they've done or whatever. But in this case, what made you go, did that make you nervous? Like that he's being so friendly? Uh, You know, it, it put me back a little. I mean, it, I'll be honest. It was the, my first experience with a subject under this type of investigation who was so forthcoming and seemingly so honest and, and very sincere, you know, one of the, one of the abilities I think over the course of time we have, and, you know, we've been cops a long time and we talk to a lot of people. And so you get to become a pretty good judge of someone's character. And, and, you know, while we're not the uh, end all be all, but we do get very good at, doing the job that we do and just by virtue of of how many times we're talking to different people whether they're victims or suspects or complainants or witnesses or whatever you begin to uh, be able to so the listeners may think like you've been through probably hundreds of interview schools and hundreds of hours of training on how to interview someone and know all of these ways to do this right now you we've been through training yeah. Right. So we're not just doing this willy nilly. Right. But it also just comes from experience. Right. Right. And yeah, it's not hundreds of hours. I think you mentioned something interesting that the listeners might, <laughs> might pick up on that. It's not just talking to bad guys. Oh no, no. We no. learn to talk to people because yeah. we talk to people. Yep. That's uh, I would say probably 90% of our job. Yeah. And people, I, I have been asked in the past, like, how do I become a detective? And, the answer we have to give a lot of times is we well, have to become a police officer because yep and then that means starting where oh bottom up you got patrol right yeah you got to hit the streets and you have to get develop some street smarts and you got to get some credibility and and then inevitably the next question is well no I don't want to be patrol I just want yeah. to be a detective what yeah. do you say when people ask that I I typically will tell them that uh, this is not the career for you <laughs> and why do you say that well because. Um, I equate it. There's a, a local guy here in the North Texas area. Who's a, he's very well known. He's a radio guy on a very, very, very popular station. And he makes these references sometimes how he's constantly talking about how he learned his craft and how he learned his trade and where he began in these really tiny little towns in Texas. And it, he worked the late night shift and he, only got to announce the time and temperature every hour in between music and blah, 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 blah. And so, but he's now in this position where, you know, he is elevated to, I guess, um, 
like a status level and and so he's got this popularity he's the top of the yeah, he's, line right yeah he's he's the highest in the food chain right now and and um but he all, he often talks about because people will call to his show to say things like I could do what you do I could sit there and talk to your buddy or make jokes or do these things and he's like hey man like you think they just gave me this 100,000 watt radio station to do this you know I started in the trench and so my response to your question would be, that's where we all have to start, in the trench. And I'd say, yeah, you can do this. Yeah. You can do what we do. Eventually. Um, but, but yeah, I'm, I'm all for people joining the ranks and sure. coming up and doing what we do. To stop child exploitation, gosh, I wish we had oh, yeah. hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people doing it. Absolutely. Uh, but it, we did learn to talk to people just by talking to people. And so I tell cops all the time, like, it's not a trick. It's not some like thing that I was born with. We just talk and you get experience talking to bad guys, good guys and everywhere in between. I mentioned in the first episode, like for me, uh, that's one of the best parts of the job. I like the interview aspect, whether it's obviously it's, it's more, it's more important when you're talking with a, an offender or a suspect and you're able to, evoke a confession or save a child or, you know, something along those lines. But to me, that's the part I like the best. I like to be in a one-on-one situation with someone in a room who has a secret that nobody on the planet may yeah. know about. And it's coming from, you know, working child abuse cases. This is the, you are talking to someone whose secret is I've done that they're saying I've done the worst thing imaginable to a child. So right. getting someone to talk about that is not easy, right? No, it's like not. No one wants to just sit down and talk to a police officer about what horrible things they've done involving children. True. Yeah. But in this case, he was super friendly. He was, he was super friendly. He was very honest, very sincere. He actually, and I, it's not a phrase that I have coined, but I have used it and many of my teachings with other law enforcement and parents that I speak to, but he's one of very few offenders that I've dealt with who gave me a glimpse behind the mask of someone who has this predilection towards children um, or this propensity to either possess this material, which ultimately will feed more desire to then potentially become a hands-on offender. So he gave you some in, insight into his sexual interest in children. He did. And what what insights do you remember getting from him? Um, it's, it's a common thing that I have heard from a few others, um, though the other times I've heard the, I've heard the response, it's most often brought up as a defense mechanism being they were abused themselves when they were younger. And sometimes that gets, um, it gets brought out, um, but it really has no crux of what, what got them to where they are. And there are statistics out there. We're not going to, right. We're not doctors or psychologists oh, psychologists no. or psychiatrists. That should be very evident at this point. I don't think anyone's <laughs> going to be confused about whether we're, we're medical experts or anything like that. Right. Um, and listening to us talk, it's clear that we're not psychiatrists yeah. or, or medical or experts in the field of psychology or psychiatry. But uh, yeah, so there are statistics that would say in our experience that we don't think that's usually the case. Right. 
in this instance, um, that was shared and, um, and over a period of time, you know, I, I often equate it like what flips the switch. How do you figure out that, you know, child sex abuse material is what flips your switch and, um, whether it's a DNA thing or a wiring thing, or just, a I don't know what, um, for some people, you know, they can't turn it off any more than an alcoholic could turn off chugging a bottle. Now, one thing that we've talked about before, not everyone involved in the cases we deal with would be classified again. We're not, we're not experts in that field as a pedophile, right? Correct. So everyone thinks like, Oh, well you're only dealing with people who are then going to be termed as a pedophile. Right. Um, and that word and that diagnosis, I guess by the experts has a wide range of things that go with it. It does. So we're not going to delve into obviously that cause that's not what we're qualified to do, but this, this individual actually may have shared some stuff that makes you believe they, he might be someone who just has an interest in children sexually. Right. And, you know, as this evolved, um, like a lot of offenders, they will fall back on, you know, I just happened to see this. Because um, think about it before the internet. What, what did people do? Like, how did people who had a propensity towards children, how did they fulfill that? If they weren't having access to a real kid, then maybe they were going places to make their own material, take photos, hiding in a bush, hiding in a car, going to the swimming pool, going to the library, wherever a kid is, a playground or whatever. And so with the evolution of technology and the internet, like this gentleman, he said it opened up a door that he didn't know how to get back from. It it paralleled an addiction to pornography, adult pornography, um, but it took a turn for the worst as he started to explore what all was out there. And so when he found all of this much younger, clearly illegal material, um, it's, it sparked an interest in him that um, he hadn't experienced before. And he got excited by it. And he was storing it on hard drives and he, he was storing it on hard drives. drives and flash drives and CDs and print print material, like running a, piece of paper through a color printer to print it on print material. And so how often do we see that today? We don't ever see that. It's very rare now. I think yeah. it was more, it was more common back <clears throat> then, right? Yeah. I've had a few cases in the, in the early stages of my career where that was a thing. It's just not necessarily a thing now because everybody has their onboard computer, you know, in their phone. Yeah. And, and it's at people's fingertips now. Right. One of the things that um, that really shook me with this gentleman with his openness was his admissions to um, being involved in sexual tourism. And so. OK, let's talk about that for a second. What is sexual tourism? So obviously we're going to have other discussions and uh, conversations with groups uh, related more specifically to, to human trafficking and sexual tourism. But so this goes into the trafficking world. Absolutely. Um, and I don't, you know, there's, it's difficult for us because we deal in online child exploitation cases. Um, and those are not always trafficking, right? Right. Sometimes those are just what 
what we deal with. But sometimes it does delve into the trafficking side. So we see a, a great overlap. Yep. Um, we don't want to say that all ICAC, Internet Crimes Against Children, is trafficking. Right. Nor do we want to say all trafficking involves ICAC. True. But there's certainly this kind of in between where overlap occurs. So definitely a parallel. Yeah. Sex tourism, right. It's terrible. Yeah. It's it's, terrible. It's horrid. Yeah. Um, what we know now, uh, maybe what I didn't really know or understand at the time. I mean, I knew what the term was and though he, that's not a term he used. That's the term I'm giving it based on what he said, which is he would travel to locations overseas to different parts of the world where, Encountering or finding a child for sexual purposes is, while not legal, it's not looked at the way it is looked at here in the United States. So the availability for someone to go to some other part of the globe to find an eight-year-old or a nine-year-old for the purposes of that. So he's traveling to another country yeah. paying for... Sex with a child. Yes. Ah, the evil in it. It, yeah. it. It's horrid. It's terrible. Yeah. And but he admitted this to you. He did. And honestly, he, he had guilt. He had remorse. We see that a lot of times in these offenders once they've been caught or kind of got their hand in the cookie jar kind of thing. And so he exhibited emotions and... That seemed genuine, seemed sincere. Um, with you, though. He wasn't, with me. Was he remorseful just at the time, or did he say he was remorseful well, when he did this? It sort of leads up to how I got the case in the first place. And so what he explained to me about that is, over the course of time and through his travels overseas and his engagements over there, he encountered um, a younger female that he fell in love with. And so over the course of some time, she eventually turned to the age of an adult and he brought her back to the United States and married her and ultimately had a child with her, which is the additional people that I saw during my surveillance. And so he indicated to me that his wife was very aware of what his underlying problems were because she was a product of that um, matter as he was seeking it. And so uh, what he said basically was that he had been confronted recently by his wife that if he didn't change his ways, that she would leave the country with their child. Mm. And so his effort to rid this from his life was to put it in a computer bag throw it in a dumpster. So and, did you find, uh, I think the question that has to be asked, did you find more at the house or was it all there in the dumpster? Um, it was not all in the dumpster. Oh yeah. When we hit the house, I say hit when we knocked on the door and he answered the door, he had already bought a brand new computer. He was upstairs in an office and the computer was live and it was downloading child sex abuse material while we were on the scene. So he had thrown away this stuff at the ultimatum point and was like you had said earlier, an addiction. Yeah. He was back 
to it again. And this was just a matter of days. Right. And so his, his deduction from that is I, I had to, I had to get another computer. And so through his openness, through his uh, cooperation, he led us to places we would have never discovered. He led us to a storage unit, um, to a vehicle, a van, a, a quite creepy van. You might have, have, you might have discovered it, right? Like, let's not discount the detective work. True, but it was far easier when he talked about it. It was certainly easier when he talked about it. And he had a creepy van. He did have a creepy van. Oh no, um, <laughs> he really had a creepy van, and so. Inside of that van, which was stored in this storage unit, were additional laptops and hard drives, print material, thumb drives, just a whole slew of other evidence. Now, he didn't just get that in the days from getting rid of the laptop bag, right? Right. That was his very private stash that he could not get away from, and... And while I, I see that and have seen that in other cases where, where collectors of this type of material, they collect an inordinate amount of it and where they would never probably in a lifetime be able to view it or review it all because it's just the volume of it is enormous and he was no different than any others. So the ultimatum drove him to get rid of what was there at the house, but ultimately he knew like I'm just getting rid of this and I have a whole stash of it somewhere else. Yeah. That's, that's the crux of, of what it was. And so, um, I mean, ultimately, uh, because of what was live previewed on his machine at the time that we were there, that was a felony being committed in our presence. He was arrested that night. Now, fast forward. What was, what, what are charges in this kind of thing? Um, so on the state side, because the task force we are tied to um, has the ability to, to file cases on a state level in Texas or on a federal level, if the nexus is there for that. And so initially, the way things are handled for us on a normal basis is we charge X number of counts um, on the state side as the further investigation goes or how further we need to dig or how much more uh, things what we the need. volume is right? Yeah, yeah. based on volume. And then there's so many other components that come into play, like um, identifying, trying to identify uh, were any of these images self-produced or does he have access to a real child? We know he has a child. Now we have to take, com- you know, factors into. And people sometimes wonder like, why does it take time for you to arrest or charge or whatever? Yeah. This is something that that's very true, right? The volume yeah. of stuff that we have to sort through and then dig into, and it may involve now cloud accounts or whatever. Right? It is oh. just extensive. There's not enough hours in the day. I'll yeah. be honest with you. It it in itself would be nothing but a full time job. I don't know how many would volunteer for that. Uh, probably not many. Yeah. It would be a high turnover rate. But the volume is is unheard of. But we're we're turning over every stone because we don't want to leave a real victim out there. Right. And that's our goal is to yep. make sure that if there's a, a real victim of something that's happened, we're going to find them and, and hopefully right. bring them to a place where they can get help. That's the goal. And to rescue them. That's out the of goal. That. 
And so he was convicted, right? He did. Um, now, ultimately, state charges were uh, dropped when he was indicted federally. Calm down. They, they weren't dropped with they weren't dropped. nothing happened. Right. Right. Uh, because the type, volume, um, the material, the, the egregiousness of the material, um, and the fact that um, it was actively... Uh, going back and forth between other individuals, um, it warranted the charges to move over from state to federal. Okay. And so that's a whole process in itself. That's a, a new indictment. Um, and then once the indictment on the federal side, the case has been accepted and the person has been indicted, um, it's just a transfer of that person from state custody to federal custody. And then the state charges typically, not always, but typically are uh, dismissed in or lieu of the federal. the federal charges. And so federally, he was held responsible. He was. And how much time did he receive for that large volume of stuff? He got 10 years. Um, he had already been in for basically a year by the time. So he had nine left uh, to do. And one of the twists on this case um, and I do this with, uh, I don't, uh, one, I never want to divulge something that would compromise another law enforcement officer's um, ability to do this job. And so if you feel like you're going to hear something like that through this podcast, you're sadly mistaken. You're not going to hear that because we're not going to give up a trade secret of what we do or how we do it. We're going to give you a lot of interesting Stuff that you would never hear maybe from someone who's just reading about it. Right. But we're not going to tell you all of the ways that we do what we do or, or that people who do this job do what we yeah. do. Because ultimately, we don't want to give bad guys ways to get away with it. Right. Absolutely. Um, but one of the things that I do while I'm having a conversation with a guy or gal, which, yes, there are gals a whole nother topic and a, maybe a whole nother exciting episode down the road. But one of the things that I will say is I will say something to the effect of, listen, things look very gloomy for you at this moment. It may feel like you're at the base of Mount Everest and that you're trying to climb it. But eventually with time provided you follow the right steps, you take the advice you're given you attend the courses that they're going to require you to attend, that you do everything to better yourself, eventually things can get better. It may not seem like that right now. And so I say that to probably everyone, everyone, 100% of the people I talk to, assuming they're talking to me on, a, uh, on the basis they want to talk. And so for this gentleman, I said those words and it's not that I don't believe them because I do believe that anybody has the ability to turn away from this and fix things. Just like I believe someone who's a, got problems with drugs or alcohol or whatever else that you can, you can seek some help while it, I would say it's far more difficult when you have this sort of propensity. Again, that's another topic, but I do believe someone can become a better person. And so that's why I told them. And so Fast forward, maybe 11 years, something like that. 
I get a random phone call one day in my office and he asked, Hey, is this Tony Godwin? Yes, it is. Hey, this is Mr. Heath. Do you remember me? I'm like, of course I remember you. Like what's going on? And he's like, well, I just wanted to let you know. And I wanted to call and I wanted to thank you. And I was like, I'm sorry, come again. (laughs) What did you say? And he's like, I want to thank you because he said, I don't know if you remember when we were talking that night, if you remember telling me that eventually things would get better. And I said, yes, sir, I remember. And he said, well, I'm at that point. I'm doing good. I'm out. I've reacclimated into society. I am a better person. And essentially, he thanked me for putting him in prison, getting him convicted and putting him in prison because he said it was absolutely the wake-up call that he needed. And I was like, whoa. I'm sure. (laughs) I was floored. So what can we take away from this case? Well, don't plug things in that you don't know what's on them. Maybe. Yeah, definitely. You don't may do have that. to see something that you can't unsee. Yeah. Um, don't. Don't just pick things up out of a. Well, you know, if he hadn't picked it up out of the dumpster and checked into it, then right, this person may have gone on to hurt someone. So I can't say don't do that. But, but it op- certainly I mean, be cautious. Yeah, I mean, reporting it to the police, things that you find, even if it's for the very simple reason of, hey, I think these people deserve their property back. Assuming it was stolen. Because yeah, a bag of computer, hard drives, things like that probably need <laughs> to be reported, right? It's not yeah. just trash. Right. Unless you see that it's from like 1987. <laughs> right. Then maybe so. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that case about Mr. Heath. Yeah. Uh, thank you for listening to us. Uh, we're going to share a lot more interesting cases as we go along, and we uh, hope you will join us for the ride. One, one thing I would add is if anybody that's listened has comments or questions, throw them on our social media pages. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, yep. and our website, catfishcops.com. Absolutely. Please and we will respond reach out. to everybody. We are, we are getting emails already, and we are having a good time answering them and, and hearing what people have to say. So thanks for joining us. Until we see you next time, we'll talk to you soon. Thank you.